1: but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 42, The Devil Hath His Chapel. Welcome back to Pax Britannica, I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Archie Viscount Simpson and Stephen Baron williams Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we covered the third and final Anglo-Powhatan War where the Powhatan paramount chieftain under the leadership of Opechancanough, orchestrated another devastating surprise attack on the colony of Virginia. Rather than expel or chasten the colonists, however, the Virginians under Governor William Berkeley responded with a brutal campaign. By the time a peace treaty was signed, Opechancanough had been captured and killed, the unity of the Powhatan Confederacy had been mortally wounded, and colonial claims to land both near and far had been enforced by fire and sword. Today, we return across the Atlantic. Recently, we've been focused on the high politics of the Civil War, kings and parliaments, and their generals and armies, as they get stuck into the process of hacking each other to bits over the question of who best protected the liberties of Englishmen. But civil wars are much more than just military affairs, especially in a society like early modern England. This is a world, getting turned upside down, where fundamental questions are being asked, like, does the king answer to his subjects as well as to God? How will God be worshipped? What is heresy? What is popery? Coming to the wrong answer on these questions could be damning, quite literally. We'll see many examples of how English society reacted to these strains, for both good and evil, and today we'll start on one of the most notorious. Over the next few episodes, we're going to look at an event which, amidst all the horrors of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, those which we've already covered, and those still to come, ranks as one of the most infamous. All of it sparked when a young law clerk took it upon himself and his colleague to root out and punish the servants of the devil. In so doing, they will tap into social and religious pressures which had long been building and unleash the largest witch trial in English history. I am speaking, of course, about Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. We'll begin the story of Matthew Hopkins and his colleague John Stern in the next episode. Today, we'll be exploring the context of the time, and try to understand why this seemingly isolated and incredibly violent spike in witch trials occurred where, when, and how it did. Next week, we'll begin a series of episodes on the East Anglian witch trials, and why, even at the height of a quite brutal multi-kingdom civil war, the focused cruelty of the powerful against the powerless stands apart. These episodes are adapted from the history of witchcraft, so long-time listeners might recall a lot of these details. I'll be focusing on three main arguments which help explain why Hopkins was not only willing to conduct his trials, but also why the communities he visited across the home counties supported him. Firstly, the breakdown in the legitimate state authority due to the Civil War, authorities that had been keeping any latent desire to hunt witches under control. Secondly, an overwhelming religious fervour that had been simmering for decades and had partly led to the war in the first place. Suspected witches were persecuted with religious and revolutionary fervour in an attempt to forge a godly kingdom, and thirdly, the drive by patriarchal institutions to assert dominance over rebellious women, focused on those women who failed or otherwise booked their societal expectations, especially those who required support from their neighbours or who were otherwise unsocial. First, we'll examine the breakdown of traditional authorities and what role this could have played in the Hopkins outbreak. As we saw in episode 1.35, The Sword of the Magistrate, by and large the official judicial process hampered witch trials. When the justices of the assizes were on their circuits, they kept a firm hand on proceedings. Establishment scepticism was high, or at least royally appointed justices were credulous about the more extravagant testimonies, things like shapeshifting and flying. Naturally, the political instability that followed the King's flight from London put an end to such a routine. Professor Brian Levick, in his chapter, State Building and Witch Hunting, states that, regarding the procedures used by Hopkins and Stern, under normal circumstances, the justices of the Azizes would have prevented the use of such evidence at the trials. At the Essex Azize in the summer of 1645, however, where most of the early convictions took place, the circuit judges from Westminster were not in attendance. He goes on to say, Without the participation of judges from the Central Court, the Justices of the Peace, who prosecuted the cases, were given much more latitude in the use of evidence than they would have otherwise received. Professor James Sharp has likewise lain the responsibility for the Hopkins trials at the feet of the collapsing government machinery. Not only were the moderating influences of the assizes judges not present at the crucial early stages, when witch trials transformed into panics, but those authorities that may have been able to take up this restraining role were far more preoccupied with the war effort. If the choice was between ensuring supplies and recruitment for the parliamentary armies, or spending days and weeks in local courts making sure the letter of the law was followed, they usually picked the former. Something common to many of these arguments is that the pressure for witch trials was either from below, from the country peasants of the home counties, or local gentry, who had the willing support of these same peasants. The highest authorities, be they royalist or parliamentarian, were often opposed to the trials. Thomas Addy was a physician during the period, and he considered beliefs in witchcraft to be just the kind of superstition that the reforming parliamentarians were meant to be sweeping away. In his book, A Candle in the Dark, he asks, Where is it written in all the Old and New Testaments that a witch is a murderer, or hath power to kill by witchcraft, or to afflict with any disease or infirmity? Where is it written that witches have bigs, nipples, for imps to suck on, that the devil setteth privy marks upon witches, that witches can hurt corn or cattle, or can fly in the air? Where do we read of a he-devil or a she-devil, called incubus or succubus, that useth generation or copulation? In that excerpt, he makes a logical point. If the Puritan cause is to eschew anything not stated in the Bible, and to discard the accumulated detritus of the last millennium and a half, then surely, this includes the demonologies popularised by papal inquisitors and court mystics. The Moderate Intelligencer, a parliamentary journal, will describe the Hopkins' trial with contempt. Quote, Whence is it that the devils should choose to be conversant with silly women that know not their right hands from their left is the great wonder? They will meddle with none but poor old women, as appears by what we received this day from Berry. Despite the impression these quotes might give, beliefs in magic, witchcraft, sorcery, and spirits were widespread across every rank of English society. Many critiques of the Hopkins Trials and other European witch trials ridicule many aspects of them, but don't deny the existence of the supernatural, just what they considered superstition. Both parliamentary and royalist writers attributed malevolent magical abilities to their opponents. Prince Rupert was a common target for such slander. In The Signs and Wonders from Heaven, the prosecution of a number of Norfolk witches were depicted as hindering the royalist cause, and Rupert in particular. Famously, Rupert had a favourite dog called Boy. For the parliamentarian press, this was obviously the Prince's familiar. One report describes Boy thus... Certainly he is some Lapland lady who by nature was once a handsome white woman, and now by art is become a handsome white dog, and hath vowed to follow the prince to preserve him from mischief. The dog was given a wide range of fantastical abilities. He could find buried treasure, and caught bullets intended for the Rupert in his mouth. Quote, Once I gave him a very heart stroke with a confiding dagger, but it slid off his skin as if it had been armour of proof anointed over Quicksilver. Boy could also prophesise, quote, as well as my Lady Davis, or Mother Shipton, end quote. Aside from Prince Rupert and his magical dog, leaders of the Parliamentarian cause were denigrated in the press, even by their own side, in a sign of how divided the Parliamentarian cause was rapidly becoming. Oliver Cromwell was targeted by his political enemies most notably Denzel Hollers, who had been one of the king's most famous opponents in Parliament, but considered himself a moderate and despaired that things had gone so far. He and Cromwell were mutual enemies, despising each other, and quite publicly too. Hollers compared Cromwell's efforts against the established order as witchcraft, quote, "'Your sabbaths, when you have laid by your assumed shapes, with which you have cozened the world and resumed your own,' imparting to each other, and both of you, to your fellow witches, End quote. One royalist writer remarked of the Hopkins trial thus, "'We have also multitudes of witches among us, for in Essex and Suffolk there were above two hundred indicted within these two years, and above the one-half of them executed. More, I may well say, than ever this island bred since the creation, I speak it with horror. God guard us from the devil.' for I think he was never so busy upon any part of the earth that was enlightened with the beams of Christianity, nor do I wonder at it, for there's never a cross left to fright him away." Lack of authority also extended to the soldiers themselves. In the town of Warminster, in the county of Wiltshire, a woman named Anne Warburton was attacked by a group of soldiers. Wiltshire had supported Parliament from the outset, but was occupied by the Royalists from 1642 until 1645. It was in 1644 that Anne Warburton suffered her attack, although she survived to complain about her assailants to court. Quote, Upon the feast day of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary last past, 25th of March, 1644, was two years sithence one George Long of Warminster, came to the house of your petitioner, and two soldiers in arms with him, and the said Long and one of the soldiers required the petitioner to open her door, who answered she would not, unless he was an officer. Then the said Long said he was as good as any officer whatsoever, and immediately by force he broke down a window leaf, which fell into the house upon a pail of water, whereby both window leaf and pail of water fell upon your petitioner and her child, which did so bruise the child that it fell sick and shortly after died. Yet not being contented, they also broke up the door, and entered the house by force. And then the said Long fell to biting, pinching, and scratching of your petitioner, saying and swearing in the most execrable and ignominious manner, she was a witch, and therefore he should have her blood, which he drawed from her in great abundance. So a group of soldiers suspected Anne to be a witch, and broke into a house, and in so doing fatally injured her child and then assaulted her with nails and teeth to try and draw her blood, as was a traditional cure for witchcraft. George Long, the leader of this group, appears to have run away from the charges and did not appear in court. The idea that the war had broken the legal infrastructure and created a vacuum which allowed for more extreme views to be enforced is a sensible one in my mind. Yet even had the legal system entirely collapsed, which it didn't, This would not explain the witch trials alone. For an absence of judicial credulity to be taken advantage of, there had to have already been supporters of mass trials that were now able to enforce their will. We've alluded to this bottom-up pressure already, it existed. The question is why.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist?
0: One likely cause for this pressure for witch trials are the social transgressions of its victims. That those that found themselves on trial in a witch panic were suspected because of their failure to adhere to social norms, marked them as different in a time when the other was a threat. Early modern society was intensely hierarchical and traditional, and violators of that social order were seen in a negative light, with extra expectations demanded of women. What's striking about English witch trials, including the Hopkins ones, and something we saw a lot in the History of Witchcraft podcast, is the idea that social norms required a community to look after its vulnerable members. Resentment of this duty, for example, from wealthier members who were expected to provide for the poor, could often lead to accusations of misbehaviour or antisocial behaviour against those same poor. If this duty of care was refused, guilt and shame for failing this moral and social obligation could be lessened if it turned out their neighbour was a badden, as we'll see over the next episodes, more than one accusation of witchcraft came after a local woman was refused support in some way. They threatened their neighbour or muttered something under their breath as they left, and then later, some misfortune befell that neighbour, say a child or a cow falling ill or dying. In a misogynistic society like early modern England and Europe more generally, women were especially criticised for breaking social norms, whether or not they broke them by choice. Sometimes this is seen as a European wide conspiracy by men to suppress a burgeoning feminist movement, or to prevent a growing threat to patriarchal control. This has never really convinced me, even when put forward by some fantastic scholars like Lyndall Roper, but it's certainly true that misogyny is an integral element in Western and Central European witch panics ever since Heinrich Kramer's Malleus Maleficarum, and it's certainly the case in the East Anglia trials. Widows or spinsters, essentially unmarried women, were often suspect, especially if they were forced to rely on their communities for support. Professor Louise Jackson in particular highlights certain elements of the Hopkins Confessions that suggest that the sex of the suspect was important. The relationship between a witch and her familiars became much more sexualized. Margaret Bates confessed that, quote, when she was at work, she felt a thing Come upon her legs, and go into her secret parts, and nipped her in her secret parts, where her marks were found. Goodsmith stated that her own familiars, quote, Hang in her secret parts in a bag, and her husband saw it. Margaret Bennett confessed that, quote, The devil in the shape of a man carried her body over a close into a thicket of bushes, and there lay with her, and after scratched her hand with the bushes, end quote. Janel instead, quote, "...met with the devil in the shape of a man, who would have lay with her, but she denied him, whereupon he threatened her, but did her no hurt." End quote. Widow Thomasine Radcliffe, quote, "...confessed that a month after the death of her husband, there came one to her in the shape of her husband, and lay heavy upon her, and she asked him if he would kill her, and he answered in the voice of her husband, No, I will be a loving husband." End quote. Aside from the focus on sex and sexuality, the confessions have a substantial focus on the behaviour of the suspects, particularly in their role as mothers and wives. The most drastic of their moral failings were those of murder, either of their husbands or their children. Around a fifth of all Suffolk confessions from this period involved the murder, or attempted murder, of the witch's own child. One, the Confession of Priscilla Collett, involved the attempted killing of her newborn after the devil appeared to her and promised her an escape from poverty if she killed her children. Quote, In a sickness about twelve years since, the devil tempted to make away with her children, or else should always continue poor. And he then demanded a covenant of her, which she did deny. But she carried one of her children and laid it close to the fire to burn it, and went to bed again, and the fire burnt the hair and the head lining, and she heard it cry, but could not have the power to help it. But one other of her children pulled it away. End quote. Similar temptations appear in confessions and testimonies all across Europe. The peasant woman who confessed to selling her soul for a flock of sheep, which was the most wealth she could imagine. A traditional trick of the devil was trading banknotes or coins to mortals in return for their renunciation of Christ or some other trade, only for the notes to turn back into leaves and coins into stones as soon as he got what he wanted. As with these cases, when Priscilla eventually relented and accepted the devil's bargain, his offer of ten shillings never materialised. Of course, infanticide was sadly common throughout this period, and often for financial reasons. Desperate and unmarried or widowed mothers had to make that terrible choice in order for the rest of the family to survive, and of course there were cases that would be diagnosed by modern medicine as postpartum or postnatal depression. I once heard a paper by the University of St. Andrew's Morag Alan Campbell that discussed cases of PPD-motivated infanticide much earlier than you might expect, and how its treatment by medical professionals and the law has altered significantly over the last century and a half. One of the things that stuck with me was that she had found that people consider PPD to be a modern illness, when it simply isn't the case, especially as we see this diagnosis fit with the confessions of many of the Hopkins witches. Professor Jackson further contextualises the Collett case. Collett was ill when the devil supposedly appeared to her, although whether this was a physical or mental ailment is unclear. But in either case, the sickness affected her mental well-being. If this was PPD, she may have felt incredibly hostile feelings towards her children, and projected these to the devil as the cause of them. Another confession involving attempted infanticide can be seen in the case of Mary Scrutton. Scruton confessed that, quote, The devil appeared to her twice, once like a bear, once like a cat, and that she tempted her in a hollow voice to kill her child. Professor Jackson makes a comment here that this is the only time she had found the devil referred to as female although she suggests that this may be because of the sex of the cat. Children were not the only targets in these confessions. Husbands were just as common. Susanna Stegold confessed to having met the devil shortly after her wedding. She stated that she knew he had powers, after wishing a greedy pig of hers wouldn't eat as much food. And the pig promptly died. Her husband, who would most likely beat her, would later suffer from mental illness, eventually fatally and Stegold blamed herself for his death, Quote, Her husband, being a bad husband, she wished he might depart from her, meaning, as she said, that he should die, and presently after he died mad. She cried out, O oh, my dear husband, but being asked whether she bewitched him or no, and said she wished ill wishes to him, and whatsoever she wished came to pass. His illness, apparently, could not be explained by any natural means, and so the cause must have been supernatural. Jackson argues that Susanna believed that she had failed in her wifely role. Accepting the beatings of her husband was the expected duty of a good wife, provided he didn't go too far. For her to despise her lawful and wedded spouse and wish him dead was failure enough. That her wishes came true was evidence of her own evil, and Jackson states that Stegold thought she was a witch, confessing out of guilt and fervently believing, her own invention, that she had three imps. In the framework of early modern English society, corruption by the devil was the only explanation for her feelings and experiences. Susanna Stegold would be hanged. Professor Jackson argues that, in her studies of the Suffolk Trials, it was the notoriety of the witch trials themselves that made these women consider their behaviour through a spiritual lens. The confessions of these women were, quote, judging themselves as wives and mothers. They were judging their angers, their bitterness, their fears and their failures to live up to the expectations of others, end quote. With the right persuasion, or coercion, these women would confess their perceived crimes to the witchfinders. And they would hang for them. The third factor, which is also partly connected to the feminist theory, is the religious element. Just like with social hierarchy, religion was unavoidable in early modern society, as we well know, and the atmosphere of southeastern England during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms was particularly claustrophobic. The relationship between the popularity of Puritanism and the number of witch trials has been exhaustively researched and is still highly debated. Professor Jackson, for example, disputes the importance of Puritanism to the witch trials, naturally emphasising the importance of misogyny over religious solitary, whereas Dr. Peter Elmer considers the religious beliefs of East Anglian society to be deeply intertwined with their political allegiance, and both combined created the exceptional circumstances of the Hopkins trials. Elmer bases this argument on two important factors. Firstly, the people of southeastern england were highly politicized by the religious and political battles going on throughout the country when the order of the universe is being questioned it's very difficult to stay neutral however he points out that the southeast was not alone in facing these developments so why the difference why were there not mass trials across all of england it is in combination with the second factor that the southeast was very rarely the subject of the military battles of the war. To quote Elmer in his 2016 Witchcraft, Witch-Hunting and Politics in Early Modern England, the absence of fighting and resulting devastation meant that local government and administration, far from collapsing in this region, continues to function, and allowed local elites the opportunity to rebuild their communities, albeit according to a new set of precepts laid down by a consortium of godly preachers and god-fearing magistrates. The witch hunts in East Anglia, I shall argue, were not therefore a judicial aberration, but rather should be seen as part of a concerted attempt by a coalition of local interest groups to construct a godly society purged of its various enemies, including witches, and reconstituted on sound biblical principles. In other words, Elmer is arguing that the judicial systems of East Anglia were not lowering their standards due to an absence of central supervision but were instead attempting to impose a new populist and reformed set of standards. Elmer points to the proliferation of rhetoric describing the country as a body politic, with all the medical metaphors that entails, to root out witches was to detox. The Hopkins trials were not a tragedy of local authorities being too weak-willed to resist megalomaniacal witch-hunters, but deliberate and popular attempts to fix a system perceived too lenient, and ungodly in this region. The opposition to the Laudian religious reforms had been significant. The reforms had been considered by some to simply be attempts to bring Catholicism back to England. We've mentioned in previous episodes the populist violence visited upon Catholics as the kingdom moved towards civil war. In particular, seven Catholic gentry families in Suffolk were attacked by mobs. Six of these families lived in towns that would later welcome Hopkins and Stern with open arms. However, one didn't have to be a Catholic to risk the wrath of the zealous authorities, and it would be a mistake to imagine that the Puritan cause was a unified one. Many of those accused of witchcraft had previously been considered some of the most godly and educated in their communities. One of the first victims of the witch hunt, Rebecca West, was first suspected of diabolism because she attended a series of Bible meetings. The wife of a Puritan minister would be executed despite being described as very godly and religious. Why did these previously upstanding individuals come under suspicion? In Elmer's view, these were casualties of a frantic and inconsistent burst of zealotry. As these Puritan communities sought to enforce a vaguely defined orthodoxy combined with a fear of royalist and satanic subversives in their midst, it is the ordinary mirth of the malignants of this city to discourse on the association of witches in their associated counties. But by this they shall understand the truth of the old proverb, which is that, where God hath his church, the devil hath his chapel. That's the Parliamentary Journal in July 1645, which was trying to counter the mockery that, for godly puritanical communities, they sure had a lot of devil worshippers. Elmer suggests that it was the conclusion of the First Civil War with the capture of Charles by the Scots, combined with the growing power of the new model army, that marks a turning point in the trials. The entropy of victory, to borrow a turn of phrase from Mike Duncan, undermined the Puritan consensus, as there was no longer a common foe to rally against. This in turn led to disagreements on all manner of things, including whether or not to prosecute witches, and if so, how to go about doing so. Next episode, we will finally look at the life and times of Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. Now we have the context out of the way, and I've presented a sample of possible reasons why he was able to launch and maintain the largest witch trial in English history, we can follow Hopkins as he hangs his way across the Eastern Association. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to Frederick, favourite of the King, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkus, the Marquess of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, and the Earl of Bradford, Richard Little. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome?
1: What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest?
0: We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective.
1: Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.